Welcome to Little Wars FM, the podcast wing of the Greater Little Wars TV Empire. On our YouTube channel, you see our club playing miniature tabletop war games set in periods across military history. But when the cameras aren't rolling inside the club, we do often like to play all sorts of board games as well. Board gaming and miniature gaming have an interesting relationship. There are many board gamers who never cross over into miniature tabletop gaming despite how closely related these hobbies are. Today, we're going to dig deeper into that question and many others with one of our favorite board game designers. He's that rare breed of game designer who's attracted wider media attention outside of the gaming community, including a feature story in the Washington Post. His game designs have won many awards over the last decade, and he is truly an innovator in the hobby. Hi, this is Volker Runke. I'm a freelance designer published via GMT Games. My designs include Wilderness War, Labyrinth of War on Terror, the Coin series of games about insurgency and other internal conflicts, and Nevsky and the Levian Campaign series. Hi, Volko. This is a real treat to get to talk to you after playing all your games for the last five or six years. Well, those are very kind words. I didn't say they were good. I just said they <laughs> This is a real treat to get to ask you what the heck went wrong there. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> we have a fantastic 90-minute conversation ahead with Volko Runka. We're going to explore his design philosophy, talk about games that inspired him, and peer into the crystal ball to forecast future trends in the board game world. And as it turns out, Volko is one of those board gamers I mentioned at the top of the show who has not crossed over into the miniature side of the tabletop hobby. We're going to ask him why, and discuss ways to promote more cross-pollination between these two wings of the tabletop hobby. It's a wonderful, in-depth conversation, and we're able to produce content like this thanks to our army of incredible supporters and patrons on Patreon. Most of our Little Wars FM podcasts are patron-only episodes, but we do try to make about a third of them publicly available. This is one of those special episodes, so one last huge thank you to every patron of Little Wars TV. Historical Wargamers are a generous and fantastic bunch. And with that, let's go sit down with Volko Runka. Hi, I'm Tom with Little Wars FM. Thank you for joining our premium podcast today. Today we are joined by Greg, Little Wars, and a special guest, Volko Runka. Uh, we are delighted to have Volko on the podcast. And, uh, you know, I think everybody will uh, will enjoy uh, what we do today. So thank you, Volko, for joining us. Thanks. Hi. Uh, yep, Volko here. I'm a designer of various uh, historical board games for GMT Games and uh, very happy to have this opportunity to chat. We have played many of your games in our club for years. I'd like to start off just with asking uh, what What's the first uh, war game that you remember playing, and how long ago was that? And this could be a, a board game or even a miniature game. Yeah, no, I remember it very well. The, my first uh, war game was France 1940, Avalon Hill version. 
and I was in sixth grade, so we're talking early 1970s. And we, of course, we played it all wrong. We, you know, the zones of control rules, we just thought were bothersome. So we ignored those. You know, we were just a couple of, uh, me and my buddy, a couple of sixth graders finding a way through it. But um, right away, I found I was, you know, learning a lot of interesting stuff about this, this campaign. And in France, 94, of course, is a fascinating and, and studied campaign. And it got me to reading other things. And then I wrote my sixth grade book report on that you know, that battle, but I used the, it wasn't a book report, really. It was really a report on, on that war game. So have you been, uh, have you been war gaming pretty consistently then since middle school, essentially? I've been, uh, yeah, I have. Yeah. I have had to take, you know, brief respites, for example, if it was something at work where I really needed to focus, uh, and give up my hobby, but it's, I'd say some kind of gaming and mainly board war gaming has been my main hobby all my life. Well, now you said mainly board war gaming, so let me try to probe a little bit deeper here and find out, uh, do you do any miniature gaming? That's a huge aspect of what we do in our club. Uh, what kind of experience do you have with other kinds of tabletop games? Um, very little with, with miniatures, uh, especially lately, but I did... Um, I did do some, I've done some, you know, go by the the game store or whatever, where that is going on and joining in. I did a little bit of that. Um, or if it's a, if it's a club, the last one, I think I remember, um, was, uh, just a couple years back. It was a chariots battle, like ancient chariots battle. And it was a, a fairly simple rule set and it, uh, which emphasized the difficulty of controlling your chariot. And so you had this, you were just like, you had this feeling of careening around. I, don't, I wish I could tell you what the rule set was and even what the battle was, but, you know, Hittites and Egyptians, that kind of thing. And uh, it really did give you the sense of, you know, you know, you're careening past and crashing into and, and just controlling the chariots across the table was as, uh, as much fun as trying to come to grips with your enemy. So, so here and there I've done a little, but it's been very, very largely um, on the, the, the board war game side. And then I had a, a role playing uh, uh, period, mostly in high school, that also involved, of course, some collecting and painting of miniatures. And I do well. And I, there's something else. Um, the uh, with my boys, we did the Lord of the Rings um, miniatures set um, from I want to say it was um, Games Workshop. If I've got the right yes. manufacturer, yes, you do. Yeah. So we um, we that was something I did with my boys and made ruins of Osgiliath and and wall and all that sort of stuff. So we did that for a while. That's a that's obviously an inspirational type of thing to do with your kids. Um, I, and obviously, I think uh, everybody, if they're not, they're aware that uh, part of your background is uh, was with uh, in intelligence uh, as an analyst, and you folded games into that as far as training. But in terms of any of the games you've made, uh, was there extra inspiration from outside of gaming that got you into that topic? I think, yeah, I think they're always. Uh, is and for the for the French and Indian War, um, I live in in Virginia, and you know we did a lot of hiking out Shenandoah Valley, Blue Ridge, and so forth. And so that that realm interested me. We live in Civil War Central, so that was a, also an, an influence, um, not just visiting battlefields, but you know relic hunting and the like. Um, but 
the uh, the idea of what is you know what was going on around here militarily uh, always raised itself as a question, and I did some research along those lines and some uh, graduate level work in in history at, at George Washington University. Did a, a uh, just a magazine article on raids into the Panhandle of West Virginia, other things like that, and I ended up um, designing a paper based role play campaign that recreated the year 1756 on the frontier. And it was the research for that then that ultimately fed into design of wilderness war for GMT. Very cool. That's a that's a great uh, I love that connection to the to your location and to the local history. We get a lot of that here obviously and we're in Pennsylvania and uh, uh, Greg um, you know wrote and produced a Civil War miniatures game, and uh, it's a great, uh, great place to play Civil American Civil War up here in uh, central Pennsylvania. I actually got lost once driving with my son to uh, Ski Liberty, and, you know, we're just kind of following the <laughs> the NAV system to get us there because we had taken a wrong turn or something, and I'm looking up, and first there were some signs saying um, metal detectors prohibited, and then a lot of split rail fences and finally cannon. And we realized we were just driving through Gettysburg battlefield <laughs> accidentally. <laughs> what a happy coincidence. Yeah, yeah it was cool. It was, uh, it was atmospheric. So let's, let's talk about your most recent game, Volko. Let's talk about Nevsky. And uh, I can't imagine there was too much backyard inspiration for that because you are on the other side of the world with that game on a, a very niche topic. Where did the inspiration come for your most recent game? Because that's such an unusual historical topic to pick. Yeah. Well, there there actually um, are, are personal connections. Um, one is that my father is from that part of the world. He uh, grew up near Tilsit, uh, East Prussia, right right on the the, the border with um, Lithuania. And so I always always had had an interest in that part of the world. I got to visit. Um, that part of Russia on a military history tour in the early 1990s. So I was in, in you know, in Peskov, uh, the, just the, the Kremlin of Peskov made such an impression on me um, and visited Narva and Novgorod, of course, and so forth. So I had that uh, connection. We have, we live very near uh, Wolf Trap Farm Park, which is a, a performing arts park run by the National Park Service. And uh, they started a series, uh, oh, a couple decades ago, of restored films with live music playing. And the first one that I went to see was the, the film Alexander Nevsky, full orchestra, chorus, soloist singers, remastered, you know, digitally remastered um, uh, image. And it was absolutely, it just, you know, blew me away watching this thing and hearing the music. So the, the so I just you know in all those respects from the Teutonic side from the Russian side, um, it 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 just drew me to the to the setting as something interesting and and exotic, as a place to start in a larger interest in re, in in modeling medieval warfare at the operational scale. Definitely a really interesting topic, and uh, Tom and I just uh, a week or two ago got to play our first game of Nevsky. And there's there's some interesting similarities to your coin series, a number of your previous games, but also some really major differences. So I'd like to know when you were designing Nevsky, 
What was one of the biggest game design challenges that you faced when you were planning the system? What's something that you really felt that you had to work on and overcome as a stumbling block? Uh, well, I, I think the, the biggest challenge for me with that was that I was not starting with a you know deep basis of historical knowledge. I'm certainly not. I'm not a professional historian, of course, but I'm, 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 I didn't have any particular necessarily knowledge of 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 that region or of medieval um, warfare in general, it was all an exploration, and I have in mind some some concepts. Uh, a starting concept for me was that this idea of a um, semi-standard forty-day service obligation in the in the feudal system that I had learned about in a an old college course about English constitutional law. And this just question of, well, you know, okay, so if you get your troops for 40 days, what happens when the 40 days is up, you know, and your enemies not defeat, does everybody go home or do you pay them to go on or what? And so the idea was to, to translate that, the answer to that question or a, a speculative answer to that question into game mechanics. But then a, a challenge is that that's sort of a little fact, you know, a factoid from a much more complex and variegated truth of how the feudal system operated in different settings, different parts of Europe um, at different times, and what was what was real and what was written. And so to go from that little kernel of that little single question to a plausible representation of a specific series of campaigns at a certain part of the world, um, that was a lot of twists and turns in the design. And I, I, and not just in terms of my own thinking, doing it this way or that way, but rather being, being corrected and, and having people step forward and, and lead me to other sources and information to give the, the game, I think at the end of the long development process, far better historicity than it had in the beginning because I started out largely ignorant. And there are lots of um, hobby gamers out there, uh, in addition to the professionals, who know a great deal of, of detail about, about the setting and the period. You mentioned the long development process. So, I mean, give us a sense of that. I mean, how, how long are we talking about? And are you, are you implying maybe that Nevsky took longer than some of your other games in order to develop? The typical process for me is is about two years um, from okay I'm going to start seriously working on this idea to it's it's in the can you know it's in it's either in art or the art is done that sort of thing um, and so about two about two years is maybe typical and and I've done it quicker it's not that Nevsky was longer I guess it isn't the right word. Um, but it was twistier. <laughs> Nevsky, for example, um, fairly late in, I was making major changes to the map based on better information on the geography of the area in the mid-13th century. That's pretty unusual. Typically, I have a pretty good basis for the map. I draw the game board. There might be a, a few small touches to change mechanical issues that might come up, but it's not a case of learning better geography, <laughs> you know, a year in. Uh, and and that was the case with Nevsky. So that's just one example in which 
it was probably too thin of a substantive basis on which I then launched trying to, you know, apply different different mechanics. I was very excited about mechanically what, you know, what I would use to represent medieval operations. And I think that excitement brought me forward before I perhaps did enough research on 13th century Rus, for example. So on the, I'm curious on the map, because uh, I know that Nevsky squeezes a little bit to get some key areas into the board. Yeah. Uh, but was it was it that, or was it your actual, you found updated maps and you looked at them and said, one, huge opportunity, there's a lot of more detail I can be using here, or it was just, you know, totally clarifying for you, like this has to be different. Curious where that, what happened there? More along the lines of, you know, where did the Russians have fortifications um, already? You know, what what are the names of places that changed a lot? Yeah, well, it's a beautiful map. I, I, I that's just one of the, the beauty of playing with that game is all the components on the map are just, I think, put you in the period. I've, I've seen a number of, I've seen you play, I think, uh, and others where they bring out uh, either bowls or ceramics or various delicacies from the period. And it just seems one of those games you want to do that with. Well, I'm, I'm yeah, delighted to hear you say that. That's the way I like to, I mean, that's the, that's the hobby for me is time travel and tourism, you know, through, <laughs> through history. And so the effort is to transport players somewhere. And the art is so important to that, of course. And so Checho Nieto Sanchez, who has done the game boards for most of the most of my designs, did Nevsky, and uh, is now working on the next volume, which is set in Spain. And he he lives in Barcelona, so I can't wait to see what he does with that. Uh, but then I, I also like adding to that music and food, and you know, if it's medieval. We burn incense, you know, sometimes when we play. Uh, it's it's a yeah, it's a uh, it's a it's a multi sensory um, experience if it if it and 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 if that suspends your disbelief, then that's sort of the that's the joy. I mean, I competition is 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 is, is fun and and solving puzzles is fun. But the but the joy for me anyway. The reason I play games about history rather than abstract games that are puzzles or competition is is tourism. And when you go tour someplace, you like to see new sights, you like to taste new foods, you like to hear new sounds, you know, music and so forth. You know, it's it's all a part of the same um, uh, effect on on your mind. I think, to make you feel like you're living somebody else's life in some other place at some other time. I think uh, we're on the same page with that. It's absolutely, you know, when we approach a period, um, it's just a great opportunity to immerse yourself. But uh, that I love that idea of tourism, you know, um, because that, that's certainly it, it, the best. That's what it feels like. You know, I think the first time I heard about Nevsky was an interview you were doing with Harold on his Harold on Games podcast. And uh, I think you probably caused me to buy a number of games from just if I think if I'm remembering correctly, for example, the creating the columns in Nevsky um, inspired by a, a metric or a mechanic from uh, Angola. 
and I think you listed some other inspirational type of mechanics. Uh, but I'm wondering, uh, out of all the ones you've done, uh, you know, is there one mechanic that uh, either you feel is your trademark or one that you just you love to reuse or you're just, you know, extremely proud of it? Oh, wow. Um, yeah. And that's uh, yeah, Harold Buchanan's uh, um, podcast, Harold on Games. And and that's right about Angola. And the, it, I just I admired that game design from again from decades ago, but little copied. And I thought, well, I'm going to copy it. Uh, and that is indeed where the uh, command cards in Nevsky come from. Yeah, I, I I don't know. I think the the coin series, which succeeded um, beyond anything I had uh, envisioned in applying well to a multiple um, multiple types of conflict. I designed it for modern counterinsurgency, but it turns out it, it delivers some interesting things for ancient warfare or um, 18th century warfare and so forth. At the core of that is a is a sequence of play that provides a semi-random, semi-controlled initiative variability and integrates that with operational choices from a menu of actions and events. And and all of that happens in the classic card-driven games, like in my case, Wilderness War, Labyrinth but in a, in a different way in the coin series that's meant to emphasize a little more what's happening on the table and less what's happening in a hand of cards that you're holding. There's, there's no hand management in the coin series mechanic. So I was trying to solve particular problems there of the impact of uncertainty and initiative and information dominance between guerrillas and counter-guerrilla forces. And it turned out to produce something that was much more widely uh, applicable. And, and then other designers have put twists on that. This is Brian Train came up with a different way to do that, to come up with very similar feeling and choices and dynamics, but for two players instead of four in his Colonial Twilight. And we now have actually two different ways of going from four players to three players within the coin series. Um, there's our opponents, All Bridges Burning, which is, is Finland, Finland Civil War, and Ken T's People Power, which is the Philippines under Marcos. It's like if the coin series uh, core mechanic, that sequence of play is my child, it's like seeing your grandchildren, you know, and you just, you know, it gives you a very warm feeling to see your grandchildren going forward and succeeding. Mm -hmm. Well, let's talk for a second about uh, about the not so warm feeling of maybe hearing complaints uh, from players who have played any of your games. Uh, does criticism of your games bother you? Is it something that you pay particular attention to after uh, you've released any of them? I certainly pay a lot of attention. And in terms of bother, it's um, it's maybe like when you're getting constructive feedback and emotionally if you're human constructive feedback is usually doesn't feel good right usually it's like oh you know somebody had to point something out and that's just a negative emotion but but hopefully if it's important 
we then take a breath and we're like, oh, well, that's that's maybe that's constructive feedback. Let me consider it and see what I should do about it or should do with it. And hopefully that's the way I, I react as well with regard to the designs. I, I pay a lot of attention and I put feedback into different categories. And one thing I ask myself in the upon seeing something is, is this a case where what the person doesn't like is actually something that I was trying to achieve for that for that audience and I'm and I'm in some measure failing to achieve or is this somebody who's looking for something different that isn't really wasn't my aim point in the first place sometimes a criticism is really about somebody's taste being different and that's useful to other people when they compare that to what their own taste is so that that's all great information to have out there about your game and None of that bothers me because I want people to be talking about my games. You know, I don't want crickets. I I, I want some somebody who's taken enough interest to get to 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 communicate an opinion about about it. That's that's a compliment already. Much more important to me though is if I've I've with somebody failed to hit a mark that I was aiming for then there are two possibilities there. And one is that, yes, I think I can defend what I've done and I can explain it. And while that criticism may be valid, I believe there is a response as to why my design decision or whatever was the right one for my purpose. So that falls into one, one category. And then there's the, 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 the final category and the most important where it's, yeah, you know, that could have been better. Um, and that is always true. Because whether it's gameplay or uh, efficiency and elegance of the design and achieving its purpose or clarity of the rules or the plays available um, or the, 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 the historicity, the model, the, the decisions of how to simplify and represent historical dynamics on the tabletop, all of those are imperfect, always, and, and subject to improvement. And my view of the whole hobby is that I mean, I would not today play France 1940. I look at it, you know, fondly, um, and 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 is it uh, of curiosity? I'm never going to give up my set, but I'm never going to play it because there are so many more better designs now because the state of the art has advanced since 1970. And so I want to be a part of that. I want I want to advance the state of the art, and I want my art to be better. I want to learn, and I am I think I'm learning each design as I go. And trying to do things better, you know, in later designs than I did in earlier designs. Well, a, a key way of getting better and of and of innovating is to take in what's out there, including specific reactions to your own to your own work. And I mean, just an example of how I got from Labyrinth, the War on Terror, to Andy and Abyss, the volume one of the coin series. Part of that came from reaction to Labyrinth, and one reaction was that because Labyrinth was a two-player game, it did not really do as effective a job as it could have in modeling global jihadism, which is and and the response to it, both of which are multi-party, multi-factional affairs, and that's that's true. In Labyrinth, all that is simplified down through some mechanics. It's not that I didn't understand that about the War on Terror. But I used various mechanical tricks to boil the whole thing down to a two-player game. And that 
um, reaction and, and, and criticism of Labyrinth as a, as a model um, led me to want to next do something that where I could have something like four players and take advantage of having four players to produce a better model of uh, insurgency because I, because I saw jihadism as a, as a global insurgency and that was a premise within Labyrinth. And Columbia offered a great story of really actually more than four factions, but there always are other factions you can consider, but uh, readily distillable um, uh, story with four main actors in it all maneuvering against each other. And that led to Andean Abyss and the coin series. I think Andean Abyss is one we've probably played the most as most as a group, uh, both face to face and on Vassal. Uh, when you set out on a project, uh, what does that look like? Um, when you, when you, yeah, I don't know if you can give us some recent ones. You sort of touched on Nevsky when, when it suddenly gets to the point where you're like, I'm going to do this. Um, I think there's something here. And uh, what do you look forward to the most? What's the favorite part of? Uh, kicking off a project and the aspects of the project. Hard to say what's the what's the favorite. Um, it's a you know d designing is it's just a joy that's separate from playing. Really, it's it's related but it's own separate joy. And there are many different components to that. From the beginning of thinking this might be a a story worth telling and, and getting very excited, you know, that you could tell it. To it's out there and folks are reacting to it, and you actually get to. Um, see and hear about people playing it and what they thought of it. So, and, and, and everything in between. Um, at the beginning, I, I am, I'm shopping around. I have some idea I want to do an insurgency or I want to do medieval uh, operations and I'm shopping around for, for the setting. A great moment is when I realized that, that I found something that has enough uh, detail available, enough things happening to have the player roles I want. You know, I have four factions in Colombia, and I have evidence that each of them was cutting deals with each of the others in their competition. And they have sufficiently distinct uh, ends, ways, and means to make the asymmetry that I wanna have in the game represent their actual personalities and history. So if that breakthrough moment is the high point when you realize, you know what, this really is going to come together like I hoped, what, uh, what's the low point? Uh, what, what's the point in the process for you that you sort of dread or don't look forward to? Is it, is it playtesting? Is it proofreading? I feel like every game designer has some element in this one that's just not their favorite part of the process. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it, it, it is, it's hard to say. Um... I do think that a reason that there are a hundred ideas for ten playable prototypes for one published game, right? Or I don't know what the actual ratios are, but it's something like that. Uh, is that it is work, and you do have to keep going. And the the most excitement might be at the beginning, and the most work might be at the end. And so I won't say it's proofreading exactly, but it's in general, I think, going for that that last ten percent of quality that requires the ninety percent of effort, where you're really shaking out, you know, the final bugs. I hate to say it's it's. I don't dread it because then when you get a solution, then it, that that's a joy as well. 
proofreading absolutely can be can be tedious. However, at the time that that you're doing the proofreading, you're seeing the finished art. So it's it's exciting in that way. So it's hard to point to any part, I guess, that I that I dread. But yes, there absolutely are are times when I realize, okay, yeah, I'm in the last ten percent here, and and now it's I want to be finished and and move on to the next thing. I, I I won't I won't deny that I feel that sometimes. That's pretty understandable. Have you ever um, either in starting out or even very late in uh, the design stage? Uh, had a uh, rule mechanic that just didn't work out um, or even into playtesting and and you had to uh, abandon it? Certainly for any game that uses a lot of cards, event cards, like in the coin series or card-driven games um, or or as I do in Levy and Campaign, you're making changes to those to those cards all the time that they, you write them in a certain way and they just don't get used that way. They don't get used at all if there's an option or they get abused or they're just, they just don't have the effect that you, you want or they're too weak or they're too strong. And the cards, I'm changing them constantly, including taking some out and writing completely new ones. So that's happening just all the time. Um, the kind of, I think, the categories of um, things that, that don't work and get canned. One is it's just too picayune. You know, it's something that I thought was an important part of the campaign. I mean, just one example I think about that is just from a from Wilderness War. I had all the provincials, you know, they would be recruited in their home uh, provinces, colonies, and 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 march to wherever they were needed. And that turned out to be a pain in the butt and not really, not really consequent to the running of the war at the scale of the game. So it just took the rule out. So there's a, there's a number of those. There are other cases where um, I have this, and I don't know if other designers have this, this, this um, fallacy, but I will tend to um, come up with several different ways to represent more or less the same dynamic and put them all in. Uh, and they, they multiply each other to a ridiculous extent. So an example of that is in Nevsky, originally I had the idea that each lord, among their various ratings that give their, their personality, their capacities, one is command. And the command rating is how many actions they can take when a card is played. But I also had it originally that the command rating was how many copies of the card would be available to the players when they did their command um, plan. So that meant if you had uh, a two commander, you could have that commander use two cards in 40 days, and each of the cards would be two actions. If it's three, it's up to three cards and three actions and so forth. Well, it becomes a, it multiplies, and so it's, a, it's an exponential curve, and suddenly a great, you know, commander is nine times as good as a crappy commander. It's, it was, you know, but I didn't realize that until I played it, until I, you know, had my set and I'm pushing stuff around. And so it was just a case of over, you know, it was quite sufficient to represent the command skill or capacity of one Lord compared to another by just having it be the number of actions on the card and giving every Lord three cards. Cool. While we're on this topic of ideas that work and that you fall in love with, and then maybe you have to jettison, 
Are there game designs that you look at that somebody else published that kind of make you jealous that, man, I, I wish I had thought of that? Uh, another designer that, that you really admire who has inspired some of your work? There are many, and I'll just mention many designers who've inspired me in many games. I'm like, well, I wish I could do that. You know, and I wish I could pull off something. Um, typically, it's the elegance of something that I, I, I strive for elegance. But, you know, there just is, Nevsky has a lot of stuff crusted onto it, at least that's how I see it, that I feel I need and I, I'm, I'm unwilling, you know, to let go of, um, to tell the story, but it's, it's burden, you know, it's, it's rules burden. And, uh, and the games I really get excited by, I feel everything that's there is, is, is intuitive and justified and, and adds to the richness and is worth it, you know, and I don't really feel that way. I don't feel I can claim that for any of my designs. Um, one designer who I, I think d did that uh, for me was Chad Jensen, um, the late Chad Jensen. And it's the reason that I'm uh, pretty fanatical about Combat Commander and Combat Commander Pacific, especially, which he did later and I think is, is even better than Combat Commander Europe. And where I think every design decision was right. But a Chad Jensen game, um, or Chad and Kai Jensen game, I should say, that's not a war game, that, that has a mechanic I, I, I'm still looking for a way to steal, uh, is Dominant Species. And in it, there's a quite elaborate set of actions that you can take each turn. Uh, and they then, and those actions then play out in a certain order by action, not by player turn. And the way that um, Chad and Kai put that into the game is with planning pawns and a chart down one side of the board. And you just can put a pawn in a space and it's going to be committing to that type of action. And only one pawn goes in each space. And so there are all kinds of things going on during this planning part of the game. And then you play the turn and you just go down the column and whosoever pawn is up, that action happens. And it all unreals quite naturally. And it's a lot of intricate design in the interactions of the selection and execution of these many different options that you have as a player that is very easily, gently um, offered to you and, and rolled out and, and then therefore plays, plays quite quickly for the complicatedness uh, of, the, of the options themselves. And so one of these planning pawn placement charts, I don't know what it's called. I know it occurs in other games too, but it's dominant species is the one where it hit me. God, I've, I've got to do that. And I, and I actually, I was working on a design about um, it was a it was a semi cooperative game about trying to stop the flow of drugs from Latin America into the United States, and uh, I never I, mean, I had a, that kind of a planning pawn sort of a mechanism, but I never ended up um, finishing the design. So it's still a yeah that's still a, a, a white whale that's out there for me. You mentioned uh, Combat Commander, um, and I didn't really know it till I was reviewing again on uh, board game group um that i guess you designed some scenarios for the pacific combat commander um correct me if i'm wrong but oh i i yes oh and um and europe also so i have uh, three scenarios in the normandy battle pack and two in the new guinea 
uh, battle pack for Pacific. Okay, so I mean, most of the my association with you is usually these larger operational or strategic games. So I, I found that uh, very interesting, and I just wonder, is that just a uh, you know occasionally that's direction you want to go? I mean, is that you know where do you where do you see yourself generally, um, or are you you're pretty open to designing at a tactical level or uh, you know at the typical level you're at. I think I'm most naturally drawn actually to the operational level in between, mm-hmm. and I would I think of Wilderness War since the, that's sort of at that point I was I mean I think I did a Twilight Struggle scenario and I did a lot of rules variance and tinkering and that sort of thing, but. Wilderness War was my first independent effort um, that was published. And I think of it as, I mean, it covers a lot of miles, but I think of it as fundamentally operational. You're not really controlling very much the resources. You're not trying to like build up resources that you convert into um, armies, combat power, and then deploy. You're not doing any real diplomacy. um, uh, Except in a very localized nature with regard to recruiting um, tribal uh, war parties and the like. Uh, it's really um, the the card deck more or less, and the setup more or less delivers your resources to you, and you have to figure out how to advance them and position them for battles that will be advantageous to you or have the best chance of being advantageous to you. So it is, um, I, and to me, it's an operational scale. Uh, Labyrinth I did as a um, as a commission from Gene Billingsley, you know, he, he, he asked me to do the game and that's grand strategic, but that was in the nature of, of what he asked for and what, what I, uh, agreed to do for him. My natural inclination from, from Labyrinth, which covered a global conflict, um, to, to insurgency was to go. And as I think you mentioned to the national level, I wanted to then focus in on just one country and what was happening internal internally. And yet that's still the coin series or my designs, the coin series anyway, I think are pretty much at the strategic scale. It is a matter of resources and interfactional diplomacy um, that makes the things happen. You don't learn from Andean Abyss anything about how one would conduct a counter guerrilla sweep. You just go in and sweep, you know, that's you're that's at a small, a lower level than what you're, what you're, you know, exploring in that game. Um, but right now, um, via not just via the Levian campaign series and, and games like Nevsky, but also just in terms of my tastes of of what I'm playing just for fun, for whatever reason, it's it's the operational level above the the tactical battles where you have um, a great deal of context, but it's not really the political choices. The politics are more or less set. The um, the tactical engagements of the forces, the individual battles are going to do what they do. Um, you're trying to uh, assemble and maneuver your forces into those battles. Um, logistics comes up, geography comes comes up, and and so forth. I don't know. I'm not sure why that is. It just happens to be. I think the the focus of my interest in terms of scale. You mentioned Wilderness War um, as one of those sort of operational level games where that's the scale you're you're running as a player. And I, I hate to make you feel old here, but I I think uh, Wilderness War goes back to the very early 2000s. And you, you might remember the exact date, but I, I feel like we got to be pushing 20 years on that game. And I want to know, 
what obligation, if any, do you feel like as an author and as a designer to continue supporting a game or answering questions about a game or designing additional content or erratas for it after the fact? I mean, how, how long is that obligation? Are you still replying to people about Wilderness War 20 years later? <laughs> yeah, and and your dates are correct. I designed Wilderness War um, in 2000. It was published uh, 2001. The answer is I, I do think designers have that obligation. They now I will say different designers focus on different things. And this how how involved is a designer in the development and in the playtesting, or does the designer give that over to a development and test team? How involved does the designer get in expressing opinions about the art and so forth? And and there are simply different strokes there for different different folks, and I acknowledge that. I'm on the end of the scale that I want to be a lot involved in everything, uh, from 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 start from start to finish. I get very involved in the art to the degree to which you know GMT allows me to, which is a is a great degree, which is a reason that I I feel like uh, I've been so. Um, such a good match in terms of uh, being a, a designer with working with GMT games because they do give designers who want to a lot of say in the production of the thing, which is wonderful for me. Well, start to finish, what is the finish? Um, the, you know, I want to see people playing the game. I want the game to be played. I want the game to influence the state of the art, to influence other um, designers, to influence the market, the audience. And it's one of the great things about manual tabletop games is the technology endures. And people do still play games from the 1970s. Um, my club was just playing um, area impulse games um, to look at area impulse games and folks were playing um, Breakout Normandy. Breakout Normandy is, I don't know, early 80s? Early, early late 80s? I don't know. But it's it goes back there and, and you can still enjoy it. Well, I want people to be playing Wilderness War today. Absolutely. Which means we're not at the finish, really. I'm, I'm still involved and I'm still representing it. And if there's a way I can be useful to uh, make the design enjoyable and accessible, it, it doesn't matter when it was printed. I should do that. Now, within that, I can't spend all my time doing that. If the game is successful then um, there are going to be more questions coming up and more um, interest in variants or new content or scenarios. And so what do I do about that? Because I do have to make decisions. I do have to prioritize. So my practice is when the game first comes out, I try to be, along with the developer and whatever testers are, are, are interested, I try to be out there in fora, maybe it's Board Game Geek. Right now I do a lot on Twitter. But if the game is successful, it also develops players who know it and who answer question, all the questions correctly and who generate new content. Um, and then I become less valuable to that and I can then prioritize and focus on other things. So for example, with regard to Wilderness War, which is yes, 20 years ago, there have been Wilderness War tournaments running um, annually for, for, for years and years. The guys who play, they know that design better than I do. And in a different way, 
something that to me was has been magical about the coin series is that other designers stepped forward and thought of settings that I would not have thought of, thought of design solutions and innovations that I never could have produced and are designing games in the same series that bounce off of Andy and Abyss and others. You know, my, my obligation is to add value, I guess, where I'm the best one to add value and to stand aside and let those more capable do that um, when my value diminishes. Well, before we move off that topic, I just want to say that as a, a player of, I think, almost every board game that you have released, uh, I really appre- I appreciate that you, you are active. Uh, I mean, I know you're active on Twitter. I've seen you active on forums for years. And not every designer does that. In fact, I would suggest that most designers don't do that. They, they release a game out into the ether, and then they allow the company that published the game to just sort of take it from there. But when people have questions and when people want to know why was something designed this way, what was your thought process? It's nice to have somebody like you who is still willing to be out there years after the fact chiming in on what the thought process was to come up with something. And thank you for that. And it, it's good to be noticed. And for me, because for me, that's that, that's why I'm in it, too. That's I, I, I game design is communication. So I might start off with an idea and a setting and, well, I would like to have a better game than I can get on this. So I'm just going to make it. And that's true. I do design for myself. But the 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 longer stretch of the work is to communicate something to somebody else. I don't want it just to be tourism for me. I, I want other players to be able to uh, take in this story that I think is a great story and 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 explore it themselves in their own way. And so I want to be a part of that conversation, uh, not just to to make it easier to access if somebody has a rules question or a question about why something is the way it is. But because that reaction of whatever the reaction is, whether it's a, it's a critique or it's enjoying some aspect or it's figuring out a new strategy or it's, um, it's, a, it's a, a question or uncertainty about what's there, that's all part of the, that's all part of the travel. I'm, I'm sharing a model with you. You already have a model of this setting, you you bring something to the table, and I want to see that synthesis of what you bring to the table and what I brought to the table, and that comes out in those conversations. So I, I really do, I really do enjoy them. I, I would say I would say one other thing, and that is I don't think this is a matter of, um, you know, this it's not a like a, an ethical question with regard to designers. It's it's more a matter of you know what what we're doing this for and what we're most interested in. I think almost all war game designers like me, it's not how they you know it's not how we make our living, right? It's 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 a um, avocation, not a vocation. What and you mean you haven't you haven't gotten rich off this yet? What are you talking have, about? <laughs> exactly, you must be doing something yeah. wrong. <laughs> um, yeah, and and I and 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 no one should expect to, of course, and and that's that's fine. Um, it means that that people have to focus on you know on their on their life and what they're doing. And if a designer has a certain part of 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 that person's time or energy that they can put into creating games, 
then that that's a that's a choice of I mean it's a it's a um, you know it's a resource decision if you will. Do I now spend time supporting this game that I have handed off to other specialties, developers, testers, um, producers, artists, marketers, players, tournament um, masters, and so forth? Do I do I do I stay involved in that while I'm devoting time and energy to that, or do I put the time and energy that is limited that I have into the next design? I mean, that's not an ethical choice. That's merely a matter of 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 what you're choosing to specialize in, and I have to respect that. Sure. And as as uh, players, I think we always want uh, our favorite designers to be. Uh, balancing that towards new creation as much as, you know, uh, supporting the past. But um, I'm curious, uh, from where you sit in the industry, I'm sure you see and are involved in lots of conversations and follow trends, but, uh, you know, do you see any trends going on in game design, either uh, style of game or, again, back to mechanics or even the, the, you know, production of games, whether with a GMT or a Kickstarter. Do you see any of those or have any opinions on those trends of whether they're they're good, whether they're going to last, or, um, you know, just, just interested in your overall perspective of how things are moving around out there? So the, the trend that interests me most, and it's something I very much want to see, and so the question is, is this, you know, am I, am I cherry-picking the evidence to see what I want to see, and I don't know. Um, but but the trend that 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 I see and that I f- feel I'm a part of and I'm proud to be part of is one of broadening and and blending across the tribes, both in terms of who plays what sort of games, um, what the nature is of the games themselves themselves and the topics they cover. Uh, so there's a there's a board war gaming tribe, you know, might be affectionately known as you know Panzer Pushers, mm-hmm. or Groneyards, but it comes out of a tradition that started in the 1950s of certain kinds of games using certain mechanics to cover certain topics, you know, beginning um, very much with with Avalon Hill, and and I'm a part of that that culture, uh, but. But I have to acknowledge that that's um, happenstance, right? We happen to start with games about Gettysburg or D-Day um, and not about, let's say, political topics or economic, social, or cultural history. Uh, in tabletop simulation, it, it began with conventional warfare topics and went from there. And it and very early on, um, hexes and uh, odds-based combat results tables and all the traditions of, of wargaming, all of which are, are great to their to their purpose, but um, led to a kind of a narrow channel of design. And the trend that I've seen is that as the state of the art has improved, that channel has widened out. And and this. Um, Tradition. I mean, it operates very powerfully in us as 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 culture does. And for me, the the revelatory event was buying on a lark and playing 
Mark Simonich's Hannibal Rome versus Carthage. Oh, I love that card game. Dri- love yeah, that. it's a fantastic, elegant design. You know, again, it's one of those where I wish I could do what, you know, Mark Simonich did there. Um, and I bought it with my, my, you know, my young kids in mind that when my boys are old enough, this is something I can maybe play with them to get them interested in real war games. <laughs> okay. In other words, I thought I said, well, this thing uses cards and it's point to point. This cannot possibly be a um, useful simulation of the Second Punic War until I played it. <laughs> and I was like, wow, you know, no, it, it it's teaching me a lot about the dynamics of this war and the politics of this war. And in such a engaging way, well, that was, you know, and that, of course, came from Mark Herman's, you know, um, We the People, uh, to which we owe the whole CDG genre. Well, that was a big st- step out of a certain channel. There were other things that had wandered out of that channel from the big, you know, uh, war game companies, SPI and Avalon Hill. But that was the one that, you know, that step of We the People, Hannibal Rome versus Carthage and this, all the other um, games that came after in the CDG. That was a very vivid sort of broadening of this channel I'm talking about. Well, now we have alongside of the tribe that came out of that tradition, we have other tribes of Ameritrash or Euro players or whatever. There are different um, types of, of board games that share some things and not other things. And I think the trend that we have today that is, is fueled um, very much by the internet and sites like BoardGameGeek is cross-pollination uh, in in games that different people play and in the nature of the designs and not just mechanically but also what these games are about where we see serious historical topics being taken on in games that look and mechanically play um, like games that typically would have been set in you know fantasy worlds or in some fictional you know, medieval market or something else, right? Um, where it's becoming difficult to say what, which, this game, which box does it fit into? Um, you know, is, is Andean Abyss a war game? You know, is Twilight Struggle a war game? doesn't matter. That sort of, the, the fact that those are, those are questions that are not, um, not drawing of a clear consensus among players is a symptom of, seeing that we can mix and match and it's a good thing because that's it's a good thing because that's what innovation is innovation is taking pre-existing ideas combining them in new ways to new purposes and so we want to have um we want to have this kind of uh sex between species in in uh, in in historical gaming and in gaming in general because we end up with better things that way. We end up with better designs. And so I would like to see that trend continue to have a growing investigation, examination, and tourism of history beyond military history and certainly beyond the you know, same old World War II, Napoleonics, American Civil War, um, using board games to look at, as, as we can see, look at topics like um, what was the British Parliament, you know, doing in the mid nineteenth century, 
and um, how does this how did the struggle for emancipation of slaves or women's suffrage work? Um, and and we are seeing games on all those those topics that come from to some degree come from the war the old war game culture, but are borrowing a lot. Uh, from other gaming cultures and intertwining it in new ways. So I, I, I see it. I, I, I hope I'm not looking at it through rose-colored glasses, but I think that that's, that's where we're going, which is it's going to be a much um, greater coverage of what are now troughs in terms of how many games we see about certain kinds of topics versus other topics. We're going to see broader topics covered with... Um, more uh, innovative mixes of of mechanics and components and and look and feel. I want to I want to pick your brain on one other trend that we talk a lot about in our club when it comes to board game design that does not just apply to the kind of war games that we're talking about here, but also more popular board games in general. And that's over the last five to ten years. It almost feels like an inescapable reality that we've been seeing a huge proliferation in the idea of cooperative board games where all the players are on the same team and i just want to get your thoughts on why you think that's become so much more popular than it ever was before and if that's a concept that you are personally interested in exploring um yes and no uh if I, as I understand it, I mean, the, the game that, that really popularized cooperative was Pandemic, I guess, Matt Laycock. And my understanding is one of the, the, the motivations to design that game was to have a game to play with his family where it wouldn't just be about, you know, um, zapping the, the other family member, but the family could be doing something together as, as a good end. And it's a great um, uh, modeling of an effort of humanity to, to, to fight disease. There are different specialties there. Uh, and it's the disease that's the enemy. And so you have a, a disease um, engine that you're, that you're battling. Uh, and that makes sense. I think it's popular because I think a lot of players in a hobby that is meant to be light and fun and social and something that de-stresses you after work, that to, to avoid rather than heighten competition among your friends, I can I can very much understand why that would be a, a benefit. The reason that I would I hesitated to fully um, jump into that that pool myself is because what I'm really interested in going back to the tourism aspect, I'm really interested in using tabletop models to examine history or other worlds, uh, uh, history or fantasy or whatever, but to go someplace in humanity. I'm interested in the history of humanity. And in uh, human affairs, there are always factions. There is always competition of some kind. And so when we look at a, any kind of endeavor, whether it's, um, whether it's fighting disease or defeating an enemy on the battlefield, there are groups of humans with uh, overlapping but not identical interests. And that means there's some cooperation going on. And that's, um, that's always true. Um, there was, in World War II, there was, in effect, cooperation not to introduce gas 
attacks on the battlefield. Um, that was in the context of total war. There's a shared interest there in not doing that. There was an overlapping interest. Of course, there were a lot of competing interests. Within um, a, a military force, if you look within the, the Red Army, there are factions all over the place competing against each other. Now they're cooperating to, to defeat the Germans, but they're competing against each other for all kinds of things, careers and so forth. So that's life. And that's the, the kind of um, lens that I apply to Colombia and Antian Abyss. Um, there are shared interests there among the factions, but there are a lot of competing interests as well. And so if I want to model that view of humanity, anything that's fully cooperative doesn't quite get at the essential truth of the situation. So I do very much um, like semi-cooperative games, hidden trader games like um, Battlestar Galactica, for example. You're all fighting the Cylons, but some of you actually are Cylons or might become Cylons, and so you're hedging and so forth. Um, games in which you are trying to um, you know, defeat some common enemy, but some of you um, get more glory in, in that victory than the others, and you're competing in that way. Um, there's a game about uh, recovery from disasters called Aftershock by Rex Bryan, and it's used a lot in, um, in training. Uh, and in that, everybody is trying to help a, a country that's been, a small country that's been hit by an earthquake, but you're all trying to score more points than the other guy in terms of the media, for example. Um, and, and Rex put that into the design because that's realistic. That's how it plays out. It's a cooperative effort, but, but you're also competing. Um, so, so I mentioned a design I had shelved on trying to stop the flow of drugs from Latin America to the United States. And you were different, either different groups of states or different factions in the United States. You're all trying to just, nobody wants the drug flow as such. You're all trying to stop it, but everybody has different interests in how to do that and what happens afterwards. And so it was a semi-co-op. Semi um, that's life. And that's why I tend to like to see that in games, as opposed to a fully cooperative, you know, we're all just trying to work together, which is nice, but not as realistic. <laughs> well, I love, uh, I love this phrase you've used repeatedly uh, during the interview about historical tourism. I've never heard anybody put it that way before, but uh, it makes total sense. And I'm, I think Tom and I are both <laughs> definitely, <laughs> definitely sympathetic to that point of view as a historical wargaming club. But um, can you can you tell me a, a period or a war that you would love to take a historical tour to, but you just don't feel confident in your historical knowledge to do it justice, or maybe not yet anyway? Yeah, I mean, it's a hard one because it's really, I don't have confidence about anything. And I talked about how I started out with Nevsky, knowing almost nothing about the topic, just but I had the desire to go there. And I mean, I think, again, I'm not a, I'm, I'm not a historian. Um, the, the only area where I think I started out saying, well, okay, I, I, I earn my living this way. And so I think I know what I'm doing is Labyrinth, which came very much out of my work experience and, and the, the issues we were dealing with there at the time in the war on terror. But other than that, everything I do is, you know, I'm going there to learn, <laughs> to, to learn the story myself. 
and to explore it myself. And that's why I'm designing. So I think what I would shy away from most likely would be those, those um, in wargaming, those topics where there is so much expertise that I'm skeptical I would have much to add. Um, I did I did scenarios for Combat Commander because I love Combat Commander and I just wanted to be a part of it in, in some small way. And I was invited to, to you know, pr produce some, some scenarios on particular battles. But there it was very much in the fold of John Foley and, and, and Kai Jensen and, and, and Chad above it all, um, you know, I, I'm just fitting in a, that story into what's already been designed, really. Um, in terms of launching a new design project, um, I, I would not do tactical World War II. I, um, if it was something in World War II, it would have to be a story that hasn't hasn't been told and in, in the in the form of gaming in 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 which therefore i would feel i could bring some history to light that wasn't already um very well understood mm -hmm. Falco, you mentioned uh earlier uh i think you mentioned a club uh and you guys had played uh breakout normandy um if you would, uh, is it a is it a recurrent club? I mean, you guys meet monthly, or um, and what are the types of games you find yourself playing more recently there? Yeah, thanks. So we had a group that met about once a week uh, locally, and it migrated from one host to another because the previous host uh, left to go overseas. So we were meeting on Thursday nights and playing face to face, and that stopped with the with the lockdown, of course. And one of our number had the idea of organizing online gaming and to make it like a, a book club um, where we would all play the same game for a few weeks online. So we had to pick something where, you know, we had Vassal or, or something like that to, to use online. We'd play that game online and then convene every four to six weeks. We'd then convene on, on Skype or Zoom and uh, discuss the game that we'd all played. And um, we did a trial discussion of Combat Commander because many of us had already played it. And then we did uh, a time where we were all playing The Hunters or Silent Victory. So we're all doing uh, solitaire submarine campaigns. Mm -hmm. And uh, I went ahead and asked everybody to report their um, campaigns. And I did a tonnage sunk competition so we were like flotillas you know and we did some oh, that's cool of the, i like yeah, that i like that idea. i had seen that at conventions where they put up the 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 big um record of 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 each boat each captain right and how many tons they've sunk and when they get sunk whatever and i thought that was so cool uh as a flotilla right it's sort of a flotilla competition so i did that on excel and then we analyzed the results in terms of you know who was doing more tonnage per sub loss per month was it the you know the americans in the pacific or the germans the atlantic it was a great fun and then we all got together and talked about it as a gaming experience then we did wellington uh, and we had different subsets of us you know it wasn't just all of us playing the same game again it was different groups online played the game and then got together and talked about 
the the um, the what we thought of the game, and some of us liked it. I I, I love Wellington um, by Mark McLaughlin. Others didn't like it as much, and so forth. So it was a you know a, a discussion of the experience. And the next thing that we did was not to play a single game, but this examination of area impulse games as a genre. Um, and so we're now sort of taking turns. Who gets to propose what what game or what question to examine? We played not some played break breakout Normandy. I played breakthrough Cambrai and Kawaguchi's Gamble. Others played um, Turning Pound Stalingrad, and so forth. And and we talked about you know how, what does area impulse do well? Was it superseded? You know uh, how much do we like it compared to what? That happened to get me. Uh, with Breakthrough Cambrai, which I did enjoy a great deal, um, uh, Michael Ranella, I, um, I, I, from that, um, hap at that time, happened to receive Verdun 1916 uh, Steel Inferno from, um, from France um, by Walter Vodovsky. And so I'm sort of in a World War One mode right now. Anyway, and the next thing we're going to do, haven't done, is Great Campaigns the American Civil War. So we're all going to, if we haven't played already, we're all going to learn that together. And probably play like a multi-command. Uh, everybody gets a division um, game mastered online, and it's just—it's turned out to be really great. In fact, I think I'm doing more social gaming now under lockdown than I was ever doing face to face, since it's just so easy to get together. And Vassal and Tabletop Simulator, the tools are there to do it. And so once you take the step of getting yourself familiar with Vassal. Um, the, it really just opens so many possibilities. And this idea of, of a club all deciding to play either a certain kind of game, even if it's separately, and then coming together to talk about it, has done away with the typical, okay, we get there at 6.30 or 7 on a Thursday night, and then we spend half an hour talking about who's going to play what and dividing up and so forth. And it, you just don't get as much um, done. Here, we all know um, what we're going to be doing. We all end up doing it separately or together, and then we all come together and are talking about the same experience, and it's just been great fun. Yeah, that is a strange silver lining of the weird times that we're living in right now. That's for sure. Um, so let's get you out of here on, on one last question, Volko. Uh, if you can, if you can tease us a little bit, uh, what is it that you are working on next? And and that doesn't necessarily have to be something for publication. Maybe it's a pet project you're working on. So uh, thanks. Um, so we're in the we're in art with Almoravid, which is volume two of Levian campaign series. So Nevsky, but at the other corner of medieval Europe, with the uh, Christians versus the Muslims in the 11th century, and so that will be ready hopefully by the end of this year it depends on uh, the art queue at GMT and then uh, after that will be a game set in Italy uh, 13th century Tuscany with uh, an initial design done by a veteran Italian war game designer Enrico Cherby and I'm working with him on that becoming Levian campaign volume three so that's in work. There are other uh, designers working on other Levy and Campaign volumes in other settings. Uh, so very exciting. I hope to have something going that's similar to the coin series in, in that we have lots of different takes on rather more varied settings than I would have been capable of myself. So there's that. Uh, Hunt for Blackbeard, which is a you know 45-minute or so two-player hunt game. Um, 
set in North Carolina, the last days of Blackbeard the Pirate, uh, which now is getting a solitaire system done by another very capable designer, Jason Carr at GMT Games. So that hopefully will be back to P500 so that you can play it with one or two players. And the other project I'm working, um, I haven't talked about yet, but it's um, working with uh, my good friend Harold Buchanan, designer of Liberty or Death, uh, and a wide range of talents from the industry to set up an award to lure designers, new designers, to historical tabletop game design. And it's focused on attracting designers from underrepresented groups. That is to say, women, people of color, LGBT+, um, who uh, are not as involved in historical tabletop gaming as I personally would like. And so we're going to see if we can do our little part to change that through a design competition. Wow, that's a great idea. I love that idea. Absolutely. Well, uh, Volko, that's the end of our official list of 15 questions. Uh, we like <laughs> to sort of, we like to ask the same set of questions for everybody because uh, it's a good a good guidepost. But if you don't mind, I'd love to I'd love to slip in two really quick bonus questions. Uh, one of them is I'd like to put you on the spot and make you do what every game designer hates to do and and pick your favorite child. Uh, I'd love to know what is the game that you have designed that you enjoy playing most. You're right. I think I think it's hard to choose among your children and and grandchildren. Um, wow. I, I will I will have to, I have to admit that when I spend so much time about two years or so working every little bit of a game I actually uh, tend not to go back and play it so if the measure of it is what am I myself going back and playing the most um, I've gone back and played Nevsky the most lately but that's probably because it's the most recently published boy I don't know Maybe falling sky, but it's hard. It's hard to say. It is a torturous question. I, I know. It's, it's 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 hard. All right, my second bonus question, and this relates directly to the uh, the idea that you said you're working on right now uh, to create an award with some other designers to try to get more people in. I, I want to circle back to a question we sort started with about asking you what kind of miniature gaming you've done because our club, while we love playing board games and do often play them, we primarily play miniature games. And as a, a really successful current board game designer who hasn't played a lot of miniature games, I would just like to get your feedback on what, if anything, those of us who are on the miniature side of this hobby could be doing to lure guys like yourself. And I think there are mm -hmm. a lot of them to try miniature war games. Is there a barrier to entry that you have seen or that you have felt? Is there a way for us to reach out to board gamers and introduce them to the miniature side? Yeah, oh, that's a great question. And, and when I have to say, I've never thought of it. Let me ask you, are there events that combine both? I mean, there are board game conventions and there are miniature conventions. Are there, there are some that have some of each? There are some that have some of each. Not as many as I would like. But if you go to some of the big shows, like I'll throw Adepticon out there as a, as a big one. Mm -hmm. Of course, it's such a big show that people play everything. 
Uh, so you will see miniatures and board games happening side by side. I have long mm-hmm. been, I've long been a proponent of HMGS, which is the nonprofit that runs a lot of the miniature gaming conventions in the U.S. I believe that they should be promoting board games as a part of the convention to bring mm-hmm. people in to, to try to encourage a little bit of cross pollination because there's not as much of it as you'd like to see. Well, maybe it, it would be once we're going to conventions again, when, when that happens. Right. Um, yeah, a, 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 you know, targeted effort there to, um, you know, de- exposition games if, of miniature games, if, if you will, that would have a, a, a pitch that would try to go to what it is that lead people to like board games. In other words... It would require some analysis of time, which I suspect, you know, you've done of why is it that somebody might go one direction or another and finding the the crossover appeal? What is it that, that links the two? I know for myself, I think a thing that drew, has drawn me more to, to board gaming than miniatures, and I don't know the state of the art in miniatures rules at all. So I'm speaking here from ignorance. But in the past... I found that when I tried to do miniature battles, I was I was required to referee. You know, there are a lot of things like where in this situation, I don't really know. I can't figure out from the rules how it's supposed to work. And I have to now improvise. And it always came across a little bit like needing a referee, a little bit of a more open system. And there are there are there's like role playing games. There's lots and lots of great gaming um, and great examination of historical topics included in which it's open play in that way. That is to say there's on-the-spot adjudication going on. And what distinguishes um, board war games for me from all of that is that is there's a closed rule set. The designer is giving you a model that is supposed to resolve all situations unambiguously as they come up. And what I like in that is I'm getting a designer's view of how things worked. I don't have to myself um, answer the question of how things worked. I'm getting a view of that that I can then react to. So now I don't know if that's just me or if that is a, a an example of a kind of a universal difference between board war games and miniatures wargaming that can't that doesn't have to be the case in every with every rule set or with every situation and there are many um board games of course that use or can use miniatures um very effectively and um you know mark mclaughlin's whole you know napoleonic warfare series i think richard borg with um commands and colors they're originally being played with miniatures but they're board games in terms of the closed nature of the rule set and then for production when they're printed, then you're using other components if, if miniatures turn out to be too expensive. Um, so it would be perhaps featuring that kind of a, if there are miniatures rule set that go in that direction, where they're a little bit more like a board game because they're, because, you know, everything is very precisely defined. I don't know. That would be an example maybe of, hey, um, board gamers, this, this looks very different. It's miniatures. Um, but, but it will deliver that aspect for you. Come try this out with us at this, you know, con event. 
Yeah, a great a great observation, uh, and I appreciate you know just hearing your even your personal take on what it would take for us to lure you into our <laughs> uh, into our side of the hobby. Um, We've actually been known to take board games and convert them to the tabletop because we like the elegance of a particular board game or or a system. Uh, but you always are going to have some material. Uh, adjudication because you know the the distances on the table have to be measured and that's usually not the biggest issue i think you it sounds like it was a while with miniatures but i i greg could chime in here but it seems like there's lots of bad rule sets out there and there's lots of overcomplicated rule sets but the rule sets that have done pretty well including greg's on the american civil war uh, really simplify the essence. And for example, in that one, focus more on the command and control, although there's lots of tabletop measuring, but those are the ones I think we all end up playing and enjoying is because they, they do at least reduce uh, some of the judgment that's required by just having tighter and, and, and uh, simpler rules. You know, it also makes me think of um, WBC and other um, conventions, board game conventions, would sometimes have discussion panels. Uh, and it might be, you know, of different publishers or of different designers uh, on some topic. And that might be a great kind of, uh, a, you know, if you had an event where you had both populations mixing uh, and you did a, you know, a discussion panel of just that question, you know, what distinguishes one from the other? What draw, you know, is it that we like to paint miniatures? Is that what, you know, <laughs> or... You know, obviously, clearly we're both interested in military history, both groups, right? What are the things that distinguish us? What are the, the what are the aspects that cross over and bind us? And and within that, then, if you're from one, you know, if you're in one tribe, what ought, what what is it that would lure you over to the other tribe? One could then uh, examine that question in the discussion, and and I think that in itself might be a way to have people from each tribe hear about the other and consider the 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 lure of of the other medium that's a great idea what's wild is up until about five years ago both the wbc and the historical miniatures the largest conventions on the east coast at least were held in the same facility at different times uh, <laughs> yeah it's crazy but w wbc is now out at last i looked they were out at towards pittsburgh at uh, seven springs but that's right yeah it's a uh, missed opportunity there but i think that's a great idea i think uh getting that discussion going and it just really might raise the issue to a level where people are willing to give it a shot all right well uh i know we've been chatting for a, an hour and a half here which is a lot of your time volko and and we tom and i both really appreciate you taking that hour and a half to sit down and talk with us about your designs and what you're working on next and your and your philosophy uh, when you work on mechanics it's uh, I don't want to gush like too much of a fanboy here but it, <laughs> it, it is it is a real treat to be able to talk to somebody like yourself who I think has been at the forefront of some pretty interesting innovations in the way that board games are done there's no question that the coin series has been uh, a huge step forward in design and I think we're going to be seeing the impacts of it for, honestly, years to come of designers who are stealing ideas uh, from what you've come up with. So I think it says a lot about uh, what you've done uh, and your work. And uh, Tom and I are, are both definitely big fans. Well, thank you. That's very generous. And uh, no, it's just been um, it's a joy to be part of a, uh, 
you know, a hobby that is so alive and, and growing and changing. Uh, and I love to see uh, other, other talents bounce off of, of something I've done. Thanks so much for your patience with me uh, today. And thank you also to your listeners if, they're, if they've made it this far. Geez, you, you know it's been an hour and a half, right? You must be on a long car ride or running a marathon or something. Or maybe you're just really into tabletop war games. And if that's the case, you should pop over to our YouTube channel, Little Wars TV, and subscribe to the best historical wargaming channel on the internet. Let's be honest, we're one of the only historical wargaming channels on the internet, so it's not like we're that big of a deal. But we'd love to show you some incredible tabletop battles like Gettysburg, D-Day, or Trafalgar. We also have hobby tutorials to show you how to paint, build terrain, and get into the miniature gaming hobby. In fact, we even have a free war game called Ravenfeast that you can download and print at home to play battles in the Viking Age. If any of this stuff sounds cool, why don't you visit us on YouTube or our official homepage, littlewarstv.com. Frankly, if you stuck around this long, you're probably as much of a history nerd and gaming geek as the rest of us in the club. Thanks for listening, and thank you to our guest today, Volko Runke. You can find his games for sale at GMT Games, and you can find Volko himself on Twitter, where he's very active, regularly posting about cool board games that he and others are playing. Thanks for listening to Little Wars FM.